0: Be Christ's church, impact the valley, reach the world, all for the glory of King Jesus. Welcome to the North Roanoke Podcast. Today, our student pastor, Ethan Smith, will be opening God's Word for us. Our prayer is that you will encounter the living Lord as you hear His Word proclaimed. Well, good morning. It's a little bit better than you initially got, but <laughs> if you have your Bibles, then go ahead and grab them. We are going to be in the Book of Habakkuk this morning. It's a small book in the the middle of what are known as the Minor Prophets that come right before the New Testament. So, if you find the Book of Matthew, turn back a couple pages. You will find the Book of Habakkuk. They're called minor not because they are insignificant, but because they are significantly shorter than the other prophets such as Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel. So Habakkuk, we're going to start in chapter 3 and then actually kind of go back to chapter 1 and work our way up into chapter 3. And what we're going to see in these verses is a perspective that is crucial for all Christians to have. What we see is a commitment to trust the Lord even when things are not going the way that you want them to go. We're faced with the question of how we should respond when God does not answer our prayer in the way that we want them to be answered. Because when we pray, oftentimes, if if we're honest, we're not really praying in the spirit of the Lord's prayer of, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We can, we can subtly nod to that, right? We want God's will to be done, but oftentimes we're, we're thinking, yes, God, I want your will to be done, but it, it would be great if your will happened to, to coincide with my will. Right? I, I get it. You're, you're God. You're infinite. You're all-knowing, but, but trust me on this. I, I know what I'm talking about. We should just go with my plan. But what happens then when the answer is different? What happens when the answer is no? What happens when the cancer comes back or the promotion goes to someone else? Do you begin to, to doubt God? Do you begin to, to question whether or not he's good, whether or not he has your best interest at heart, that he actually cares about you or even that he exists at all? And in this short book of Habakkuk, we see a prophet making a plea with God, and he receives an answer that he is not wanting. In fact, it's basically the opposite of what he actually wanted. But what we're going to see is by the end, we are not left with despair. But we're left with an example of what it means to trust the Lord even when we don't understand. We're to learn to remain in our faith, knowing that even when we don't understand what's going on, why things are happening the way that they are happening, that God does. That He is good, and He does what is good and right. And this needs to be our, our mindset. The way we see the world has to be this rock-solid conviction that God is good and that He does good, even when we don't understand. So hopefully, by now you are in Habakkuk chapter 3, and we're going to read verses 17 through 19. Habakkuk chapter Three verses 17 through 19 says though the fig tree should not blossom nor fruit beyond the vines the produce of the olive fail and the fields yield no food the flock be cut off from the fold and there be no herd in stalls yet I will rejoice in the Lord I will take joy in the God of my salvation God The Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on my high places. To the choir master with stringed instruments or to the end. Let's pray together and then we'll dive in. Father in heaven, we thank you for the opportunity to gather. We thank you for your word, that we can have your word. We thank you that you are good and that you do good. And I pray that as we look at this passage, Lord, that you would open our eyes, our minds, to the reality that even when we don't understand why things are happening, that you do. And Lord, help us to trust you in the midst of that. You are worthy of our trust. We see Christ knowing that you are good and you do good and you care and love us more than we can even begin to imagine. So we pray that you would speak during this time for the glory of Christ. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen. So, in order to understand what is going on in Habakkuk chapter 3, we need to go back to chapter 1. So turn back a page with me. Chapter 1, verses 2 through 4, the, the book begins with a prayer from Habakkuk, and the heading in the ESV Bible, right over verses 2 through 4, very fitting. It's Habakkuk's complaint. Habakkuk's complaint, and he's complaining to the Lord, and that's something I think we can all relate to, but in this case, he actually has something legitimate to complain about. He complains about the sinfulness of the people of Judah. Now, remember with me, The the history of Israel, you have King David and you have King Solomon over a united kingdom. But after Solomon, the kingdom actually splits into two separate nations. You have Israel on one side and you have the nation of Judah on the other. So Israel establishes their own king. They really go off into idolatry. But Judah, on the other hand, still has Jerusalem So they have the temple, the location where you are to worship God, and they have the true Davidic king ruling over them. So if anybody is to be faithful to God, to know what God wants, and to obey God, it should be Judah. And yet what we see is that they are incredibly wicked. So much so that Habakkuk complains, The Lord against them. Look at verses 2 through 4 of chapter 1. Habakkuk writes, or Habakkuk prays, O Lord, how long shall I cry for help and you will not hear? Or, Or cry to you violence and you will not save? Why do you make me see iniquity and why do you idly look at wrong? Destruction and violence are before me, strife and contention arise. So the law is paralyzed, and justice never goes forth. For the wicked surround the righteous, so justice goes forth perverted. Habakkuk takes a look at the people that are around him, the people that have been set apart by God to worship the one true and living God, and he is sick to his stomach. And This isn't the, the first time he's prayed to God on their behalf. Do you see that? How long shall I cry for help? How long do I have to keep praying to you, God? Do you not see what's going on? He sees injustice. He sees violence. He sees the law of the Lord being cast aside as if it is irrelevant. And he gets frustrated. We can often do the exact same thing when we're praying, can't we? We pray for something, pray for something that's good, but then we continue to pray, and nothing changes. And so we either stop praying, or we get frustrated and complain. But in this case, right, we we think this is a righteous complaint. What he longs for is revival in his nation. He wants an outpouring of the Spirit in such a way that that the criminal that is cast aside, the law, will be converted and begin to obey the very law that he has deemed irrelevant. He wants to see a renewal, a revival, an outpouring of the Spirit of God. And this is what we should long for today. Today, we, we have in our history as a country something known as the Great Awakening. In fact, we actually have two Great Awakenings, but the first one is kind of the, the major one. It was a time of mass revival taking place all throughout uh, the colonies in America, taking place in the 1730s and 1740s, so even before America is a country, led by men such as George Whitefield, Jonathan Edwards, and they saw such amazing responses where where families were transformed by the gospel, where whole communities were transformed. And we even see some of the effects today kind of in this religious inclination that we have as a country that we, we can't quite shake, though it seems to be quickly vanishing. But it's all traced back to this moment of the great awakening. And this is what Habakkuk has in mind when he's praying to God. This is what he longs to see. This massive revival, a renewal in which the people of God begin to act like the people of God. That's what he's praying for. But that's not how God responds. Look at verses 5 and 6 the Lord answers him and he says, Look among the nations and see. Wonder and be astounded. For I'm doing a work in your days that you would not believe if told. For behold, I'm raising up the Chaldeans, that bitter and hasty nation who march through the breadth of the earth to seize dwellings not their own. Look outside of Judah for a second. Habakkuk. Look among the nations and see. I'm about to do something so spectacular that if someone on the street told you that this was going to happen, you would not believe it. Now up to this point, that sounds pretty good, right? How's God going to follow up? Maybe he's going to say, I'm getting ready to raise up a king that's going to restore the law. He's going to kick out all the enemies all around Judah you're going to be reestablished. The worship in the temple is going to flourish and everything's going to be great. That's not what he says. Instead, he said he's raising up the Chaldeans, Babylon, in order to punish the nation of Judah. There will be no revival at this moment. Only punishment for sin. God will act. God will answer Habakkuk's prayer. God will see that justice goes forth unperverted. But it's through punishment. What is, what is the response that God has promised them in the book of Deuteronomy for disobedience to the law? For transgressing the covenant? It's not blessing. It's a curse. A pagan nation will be used by God in order to punish his own people. Pause for a second and just think about how antithetical that sounds to us. God will use a pagan, godless, idolatrous nation in order to punish his chosen people. Imagine with me uh, a family with, with two young brothers living in the house. Some of you might be able to relate to this. Right? The younger brother is, is constantly disobeying the parents. He never listens when he's told to pick up the clothes, take out the trash. He doesn't care. He's not going to listen. He's going to do what he wants to do. He's going to lay on the couch. Right. The older brother on the other hand listens to his parents. Right? He tries to obey when he's told to, to clean up his room, to, to sweep the kitchen. He's, he's definitely not perfect, but he, he tries his best, right? That's what parents are after, trying your best to clean up. But then comes a, a Saturday. It's, it's beautiful outside. It's 75 degrees. It's not like today. And all his friends are outside, he's playing, but it's Saturday, so he's supposed to, to sweep the kitchen. But he thinks, nah, I'm good. I'd rather be outside, I'd rather be with my friends, it's not that big a deal. I just won't sweep the kitchen. So when the parents come back, they see that the kitchen is not swept, what do they do? They punish the older brother. But to make sure that he actually does sweep the kitchen, they assign little brother to watch him. and Keep an eye on your big brother. Make sure that he sweeps the kitchen the way he's supposed to. Now, we would, we would complain about this, right? That's not fair. The younger brother is far more disobedient. He never listens, and yet it's the older brother in this moment that's punished. That cannot be Right? We become frustrated when the wicked seemingly get away with everything and the righteous are charged over very little. And Habakkuk has the, the same idea. Look at verses 12 and 13. I'm actually going to start about halfway through verse 12. It says, O Lord, you have ordained them as a judgment, and you, O rock, have established them for reproof? You who are of purer eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong? Why do you idly look at traitors and are silent when the wicked swallows up the, more, the man more righteous than he? You can almost hear him exclaim, right? Them? You've ordained them as a judgment? Out of everybody in the world, you pick the worst of the worst in order to punish us? I must have misunderstood something. I know that you are infinitely holy. I know that you cannot look on wrong. Surely you cannot sit by and allow the righteous, your your chosen people, to be conquered by the wicked. But pause for a second. Habakkuk began his prayer... By complaining about the wickedness of Judah. They've abandoned the Lord. They're doing violence. Justice is perverted. They are a wicked nation. But now, Habakkuk wants to say that Judah is, is righteous? That's interesting, right? What in the world changed? before he was comparing them to the holiness of God but now he's comparing them to the wickedness of Babylon and how often do we do the exact same thing we we know we're not perfect we would never claim to be but when push comes to shove we're really not as bad as those other people we know right i know i have a temper issue i can blow up i can get mad very easily You should see that guy in my office. I I, I watched as a colleague sent him an email. It had a typo in it, and he absolutely blew up. Yelling, screaming, made this entire scene. If you want to talk about a temper, you can talk to that guy. I, I, I I know I look at things that I shouldn't on the computer, but you should really talk to my neighbor. He's cheating on his wife, and everybody knows it. He's not even trying to hide it. We make excuses for ourselves as we compare ourselves to those whom we deem to be worse sinners than ourselves. And we justify ourselves and our sin. But Habakkuk is exactly right, is he not? God is of purer eyes than to see evil. He cannot look at wrong for his holiness. But what Habakkuk fails to recognize as he calls out for justice that Judah is still guilty. And in fact, one could even argue they're, they're worse than the Babylonians because they have the law. They have the temple. They have the true Davidic king. And yet they still go astray. They still disobey. Now how much worse are we when we have The totality of Scripture, the Word of God, so readily available for us, and we know the person and work of Christ. No, this is not unfair for God to raise up Babylon in order to punish Judah. He is dealing with the sin that Habakkuk prayed against, but he's dealing with it in a way that the prophet was not expecting or even wanting. But he answered the prayer in a way that is good and right. In this moment, he's pouring out on Judah exactly what they deserve. So how do you handle it when, when God answers your prayer in a way that you don't want? What happens when the person you love, you've been praying for them to be healed from their cancer or COVID for seemingly years. And they die. What happens when you've worked hours and hours and hours at your job, you've worked weekends, you've given up baseball games, school recitals, in order to get this promotion, and it's given to your coworkers. What then? What happens when that son or daughter that you've been praying for for the last 30 years is still far away from God? What do you do? How do you respond? Because it's in these moments that you display either the strength or the weakness of your faith and your belief and trust in God, how you respond shows your heart. Habakkuk understands this. And in, in chapter 2, verse 1, he says, I will take my stand at my watch post and station myself on the tower and look out and see what he will say to me. God, I, I don't understand what's going on. I don't understand why you would act in this way, but I'm committed to waiting on you. I will take my stand and I will wait for you to answer. He's committed to waiting, thinking God just might know more than he does. That God maybe, just maybe, has a bigger picture in front of him. We have what's right in front of us, but God sees everything. That God understands why he's acting in the way that he is acting. And God does answer him. He answers him in a way that that settles his heart and and gives us a theme that's picked up in the New Testament. God assures Habakkuk in chapter 2 that the Babylonians will not escape judgment. Yes, God is going to use them to to punish Judah. Judah has acted wickedly. They deserve punishment, but the wickedness of Babylon has not eluded him. There's a day coming, and one that's described in detail in chapter 2, which we're not going to be able to, to go through, but describing the, the punishment that will fall on Babylon. There are five separate instances of the word woe being used in chapter 2, and this shows the, the seriousness with which God is taking Babylon. You see, for the, for the Jewish nation, when an oracle of God, when an announcement from God Comes, it could be either right positive or negative. If it's positive, it's usually uh, preceded with the word blessed. It's a it's a show of blessing on the people. Think of Jesus in the Beatitudes, right? Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be satisfied. But when it's negative, when it's a curse. Proceeded by the word, woe. Think of Jesus again. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites. Think of Isaiah chapter 6. When the prophet of God comes before God in his, in his holiness, he says what? Woe is me. Right In that moment, Isaiah isn't isn't saying, oh, poor, miserable me, I'm having such a bad time. No, he's saying, before God cursed am I, the very curse of God be put on me, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of glory. Five separate instances in which Babylon has woe declared against them. Babylon will be judged for their wickedness. They will not escape. Now, why is that important? Because it should put confidence in the hearts and minds of Christians. It should put a a bar of steel in our spine. Because the reality is we see wickedness all around us. And the worst part is most of the time it goes unnoticed and it certainly goes unpunished. We take someone like an an Adolf Hitler, the the pinnacle of evil in the 20th century, right? Orchestrated the death of over 6 million Jews, takes his life in a bunker before he's captured, before he's able to stand trial for his crimes. That doesn't seem fair. From a human perspective, he seems like he's escaped judgment. But he hasn't. He will not escape God's judgment. Some of you in here have been seriously hurt by someone in your life, whether physically, emotionally, psychologically, maybe no one knows about it but you and that other person. But you can take heart because God knows. That sin will be dealt with. That individual will have to give an account before God. Sin must be dealt with, and it will either be dealt with on the cross of Christ or in eternity in hell, but it will be handled. So, what is there to do for the believer? Chapter 2 and verse 4 gives us an answer and one that is very familiar, wonderfully familiar for those who know the New Testament. He says, but the righteous shall live by his faith. The righteous person is the one who trusts in the Lord even when he doesn't understand what's going on. In In the midst of wickedness, faith holds on. But what is the faith in? We understand that that true faith will persevere, right? But the righteous will live by his faith. He will continue in his faith. He will continue trusting to the end. But what's the content of that faith? We don't, as Christians, have faith in faith. Just have more faith. We don't have faith in faith. And we don't even have faith in God in the abstract. So what's the content? Romans chapter 1 verses 16 and 17 says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. Here it is, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. It's the power of God in the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ that gives us life. It is faith in Christ that will persevere in the midst of a wicked and dark culture. And do not misunderstand me. This culture we are living in is wicked and increasingly so. Our anchor must be in Christ crucified and risen or we will falter. But consider for a moment the, the counterintuitiveness of God. It's spectacular. To Habakkuk, he uses a, a wicked nation in order to punish his own people in order that the righteous remnant will continue to live by faith, to live in a trust in God. That they're delivered. Through the judgment. And then on the cross, God judges the innocent, sinless Son of God, pours out his wrath on him so that those who believe will be delivered. Salvation throughout the Bible comes. Through judgment. As we said, sin must be paid for and it will either be paid on the cross of Christ or in an eternity in hell because sin is that heinous and you are that guilty. But for those who believe in Christ, who have repented of their sin, the only real option when we come to circumstances that are Incredibly difficult when we don't understand what's going on. Why are things happening the way they're happening? Why am I going through this? The only real option is to trust Christ. I say it's the only real legitimate option. We can doubt the goodness of God. We can doubt whether or not God actually exists. But if you know Christ, if you know Christ crucified and risen, then the goodness of God can never be in doubt. We can't question whether or not God loves us or God is for us when you look at the cross. And this should lead us to have the understanding and the confidence that Habakkuk has in chapter 3, verses 17 through 19, where he says, though the fig tree should not blossom on my high places to the end. In this final passage, do you do you notice how things seemingly go from bad to worse? The fig tree doesn't blossom and neither do the rest of the fruit producing trees or vines. The olive fails so that there's no oil for for medicine or for lighting your lamps. The field doesn't produce any crop, which means you have no means of making money. You have no food for yourself. And if you don't have food for yourself, then you don't have food for your animals, right? The flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls. This is the worst situation imaginable for an agrarian culture. Their livelihood has been absolutely destroyed but they are not without hope in the midst of all the turmoil Habakkuk says he will rejoice in the lord he will take joy in the god of his salvation joy that is that's not based on material prosperity it's not based on everything going right in your life It's not based on everything you ever wanted taking place, but it's based on the unshakable promise of God that is fulfilled in the Lord Jesus Christ. So that the finished work of Christ, whether things are going well or things are absolutely terrible, that will not change. We sang, it is finished. And regardless of what's taking place in your life or in this culture, it is still finished. It cannot be taken away. It cannot be lost. That God is our strength when we're at our weakest. So Christian, is this your response? Are you so satisfied in Christ that if you lose everything else, you're okay? That if everything was taken away, you're still okay? Why? Because you have joy in Christ. A joy that cannot be taken away. Can you patiently trust the Lord who reigns and rules over all, even when you don't understand why things are happening the way they're happening? Can you you feel within you, God, I don't understand. Why are you letting this happen? But I know you're good. I know that you care about me. Can you say with, with Paul in Romans chapter 8 verses 38-39 through 39, that I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all of creation. That's everything, right? And nothing will be able to separate us from the love of God. Of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. When we don't understand. We can trust that God is for us. That he loves us. Because we see the cross of Christ. But unbeliever in here. Do you understand that you are without excuse. For the God of the universe. The judge of all the earth. That like. Babylon, you will not escape judgment. You won't. You will give an account before God. And apart from faith in Christ, you will bear that judgment. But you have the opportunity to believe in Christ, who was your substitute on the cross crucified, buried, risen on the third day so that if you would believe in Him, you could have life. Don't put it off. Don't wait. My prayer is that our prayer as a church would be the same as Habakkuk's. Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no food. The flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. Would you pray with me? Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. God, we thank you for a variety of things that are present in this passage. Lord, that you are right, you will do right. God, that the wickedness we see all around us will not go unnoticed or unpunished. We can have confidence that you are the righteous judge of all the earth. And Lord, all the more that we have a hope in Christ that is not dependent upon our circumstances. So that God, even when we don't understand why things are happening the way they're happening, that you do, that you're good, that even when things seem to be crumbling all around us, we can trust that you are good, you are for us, you love us, because we see the cross of Christ. And and having Christ... We have everything we need. So help us to rejoice in the God of our salvation. Rejoice in the Christ who saved our souls. And Lord for the unbeliever in here that knows they don't believe in you. gotta pray that the weight of your coming judgment would sit heavily upon them. And that they would turn to Christ in faith and live. Lord, I pray that we would worship you during this time. For your son's beautiful name I pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to the North Roanoke podcast. You can connect with us at northroanoke.org or download our app in your device's app store. Just search for North Roanoke. We hope to meet you soon.